This podcast is brought to you by People Dancing and was recorded in front of a live audience at the People Dancing International Conference, Glasgow 2017. In conversation, dance for people living with Parkinson's in Scotland, Catherine Cassidy, Director of Engagement, Scottish Ballet, and Dr Bethany Whiteside, Research Lecturer and Doctoral Degrees Coordinator, Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. We want to present together, so we're going to switch between each other, um, and we'd like to encourage some discussion, so please jump in and ask questions if you want to. Um, is there anything you'd like to add about the format, Um We've kind of got a dual focus because it's a conversation that we've never been able to have because of time and we've always uh, wanted to have it. So we're going to look a little bit um, about the impact that Darts for Parkinson's got <coughs> And sociologists, art sociologists, is my background, and have been more interested in how workplaces operate and Scottish Valley is a very exciting company. And then we're also going to talk about the purpose um, and the importance of research and evaluation for Scottish Valley because you made a huge investment in terms of um, really using evaluation to disseminate them and being part of the, the design. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of dual focus we're going to get with. So we'll start with a brief background into the Dance for Parkinson's programme um, and then talk a little bit about our relationship and how we started to work together in partnership um, because we've actually worked on several projects, not just Dance for Parkinson's, but Bethany's also written a report on our dancers' education group, so I'll talk a little bit about that. But in essence, it's when the professional ballet dancers have the opportunity to have teacher training with the education department, which exists within Scottish Ballet. Um, and also Bethany's written a report for us on The Close, which is a programme that we run for um, young adults who have had adverse childhood experiences, so they are volatile in different ways and need additional support um, in the creative environment, in any learning environment actually. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that relationship as well. So shall I start with the, um, set the context with the background? Um, so the Dance for Parkinson's um, I was introduced to Dancer Parkinson's actually at the Cardiff um, People Dancing Conference um, and what really struck me was the fact that, it, that they were just teaching contemporary dance which I felt very at home with and creative tasks and I felt it was something that uh, within the capacity of my team at Scottish Valley we could deliver really easily um, and so I went over to New York and observed David Leventhal who developed the Dance for PD um, training programme which is now all over the world, um, and which our practitioners were originally trained in. Um, however, we've developed our own practice from that foundation. Um, I went out and spent a week uh, with him and, and different uh, colleagues of his, and then we uh, put in a, a funding application to Paul Hammond Foundation to do an 18-month-long pilot, which we're now, we've now continued to fundraise, so we're now just past that stage. And we recently submitted the report on that and also um, put in a new application for more and better funds so that we can start to deliver in pilot communities. So as part of our ambition for the programme, we'd like to see Dance of Parkinson's happening in 
lots of areas across Scotland, not just the central belt where the population is dense. Um, so Leslie, who's one of our partners um, in Kilmarnock, um, is one of a number of people that we've been working with in Inverness and Dundee and, and different locations across Scotland so that we can uh, test out the community to see if they're interested there. Do we need an extra chair? You'll get one, thank you. Um, but also because Scottish Valley is a touring company, we're very comfortable with working across multiple sites at any one time. However, that's not to say that it's not always about challenges. I'm sure you can imagine that when you're communicating on a weekly basis with a team that's several hundred miles away, it, it can be really difficult. Um, and some of the projects have pulled back just because it has become too difficult to manage it. So we're going cautiously. And what we've done is we've built up a number of partnerships in each of the cities or towns so that we can support the project from lots of different angles. So it's not just one partner that we're relying on to do all the work. And yeah. um, so that's kind of a little bit of the background. Um, do you want me to talk a bit about the practice here in Scottish Valley and how my, my role with Scottish Valley and Valuation is actually coming in at the end of the first year of this pilot project. Yeah. So I was able to come and see Valuation and see the project after it had developed over that period. So it would be good for me to go back over yeah. when we got to that point. We initially worked with the NHS, so Dr. Rossett, who's based at the Southern General Hospital in um, Glasgow. Um, he is um, a supervising practitioner and consulting practitioner and he supervises the only full-time PhD research placement in Parkinson's research in the UK. Um, so we're really fortunate to have him and his wife also works together with him um, in his NHS practice. She is also a Parkinson's doctor. So they, they were really keen to have a look at how we were working and um, they had a Parkinson's nurse who attended every two weeks, Alison, um, and she came along and collected research and participated in the classes. Um, but we felt that the research wasn't looking as deeply as we would like it to have done. Um, it, we were very much looking at how dance um, impacts on the health and well-being aspect of people living with Parkinson's. And what we wanted to do was to look at more specifically um, how the movements um, helped with fluidity and stamina. Um, we wanted to look at something, well, we didn't want to look at this, but it's something that Bethany discovered, which we're both really excited about, was how participants use the class at home and in their everyday life. And because what was very obvious from the outset was that the classes had an impact for the whole day. So if participants came along and danced for the morning, for an hour, hour and 15, that kind of lasted for the rest of their day and the benefits in terms of their confidence, their mood, and their movement in their bodies. It was all improved. Um, but after that day, it was gone. So what we wanted to see was, because obviously we could, there's only limitations to how many classes we could provide, and also there's a demand, so we want to facilitate everyone having a weekly class was to look at how um, how the movements worked at home. But it wasn't just movement, it was the use of voice as well. It was, it so was I'm kind of jumping into myself, aren't I? We've digressed from the plan already. I think it was, <laughs> it was really 
made me feel quite uncomfortable, which is because I had never undertaken research that's so blatantly sort of asking about um, loneliness and sadness and depression. And I just, I think, trying to kind of preserve your standpoint and integrity as a researcher, I didn't feel comfortable doing something. I didn't have any experience with it, and wasn't quite completely on board with. So then, Professor Cynthia McRae at the University of Denver told me about a questionnaire that she developed with David Leventhal, which is all about the impact of dance with Parkinson's classes outside of the studio. And it's very much um, designed with Parkinson's dances in conjunction with um, uh, kind of free consultation, the language. I sent it to Catherine before we decided to use it, and your reaction was just, yeah. I got this email back, yes, this is the. Yeah, it was lovely because it was more affirmative and it was rather than highlighting the difficulties and focusing in on what is a struggle with a condition uh, such as Parkinson's, it looked at the joy of dance. And so it was more about um, an uplifting. It, it, because I had also spoken to Alison, one of our dancers with Parkinson's, um, who is also a researcher, and she had been. Uh, so disheartened with the NHS questionnaire where it really, you know, it was asking very specifically about whether people had felt, you know, suicidal, had they felt isolated, did they feel separate from their families, did they feel trapped up, but, you know, really sort of reinforcing those real negatives. And for us, it didn't feel like a journey that we wanted people to be going down, that we were, we were encouraging. So that's why this one felt, and it was very dance specific. It's just about the movements and yeah. the anesthesia. Um, and a lot of the language was kind of resonated with being, with being a dancer. So um, certain questions ask about posture and about flexibility. And um, it, just reading the questions makes you think, yes, I'm responding to this as, as a dancer, as a dance participant. And as Catherine mentioned, Dr. Gossett was also undertaking a piece of research which was more clinical. So I was quite keen that the participants that we were working with, Parkinson's dancers, weren't getting a sense of research fatigue in the sense that they were being asked very similar questions from two different researchers. Because people were giving up their time and were supporting us in undertaking this. So just to, just to add that in. Yeah. Um, does anyone have any questions so far? Can I just ask about scale? How many <coughs> groups we're operating and how many people? That's a brilliant question to set in context. We, have, we, we run two classes per week in Glasgow in this studio and there's, there's around 30 on each register but we usually have about 20 each class and that includes partners and family members and carers so most people come somewhere else, not everyone. And we also run a class in Edinburgh uh, per week in, in partnership with Dan Space and Sophie leads that class in Edinburgh. Yes, and we have about 30 participants registered and probably about 25 will come along because we just run one class but it's for an hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so um, that was that was the scope, so around 75 people, but we... Uh, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> From somebody who's so frightened of numbers, I really got into numbers, which I can talk about further, but just to um, add on rate, so 40, 42 respondents to this questionnaire, which was, um, which it was over 70% response rate based on active attendees on the register, because while I was with Scottish Valley Dance Space, it's a very intensive period, just over six to seven weeks. 
So I was just capturing those people who were attending those classes in that period. So there were certain people on the registers who were just taking perhaps time out for a couple of months due to different reasons. So they wouldn't be included in the response rate because they weren't an active participant. Um, and you know, please jump in if you want this. Sophie is also uh, an academic and dance Parkinson's too, but I was so excited about the response rate of over 70%, and it really highlighted just how invested um, the Parkinson's dancers were in the evaluation, which I can also talk about a bit more. And it's good to know that um, it feels to me, although I don't deliver the classes, but it feels to me that there's what's blossomed is a core group who are very passionate and very proactive and that is a majority of the class and then there are people who because their condition is so advanced they dip in and out of the class or because their life um, circumstances are more challenging it's it's more difficult for them to be as committed is that right so Absolutely. yeah so i'd say something like 70 to 80 percent of the class once people are here they love it they come they feel the benefit they and then we have a periphery group who, are, who come in and out and, yeah. Do you, do you have a sense that for those that find the classes therefore more challenging in terms of just their, their positioning in, in the life cycle of Parkinson's, get more out of it, although they may be more transient in their visits due to circumstance, mm -hmm. does that actually have a greater impact than those that are regular and actually not further down the road of the Parkinson's? I, um, <laughs> well, quickly, I'd say um, no, I don't think that it has more of an impact. I think that both demographics, it's as impactful. But I think one of the things that we have to be really careful of is that because we have that core, which is very much the same in Edinburgh, and actually we've been running the process there for about five years, and so we do have some people who've been from the start. So it's a really solid call. I think that um, something that we need to focus on, everyone needs to focus on, is inclusivity and making sure that those who uh, uh, join the class at a later point um, feel as included. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, inclusivity and access. Also reaching those who might not access the, what we're doing. Um, you know, without encouragement, that's hugely important. Just before we respond as well, just a kind of side note to that, is that a lot of the people that come to the class in Glasgow have been referred um, from Dr. Grosset, um, but also we work in partnership with Parkinson's UK, so that there's also another um, promotion there for the class. We have a waiting list now in Glasgow, which I'm keen to, to get another class going if we can. It's just the capacity is an issue, and the classes are quite expensive to run because we really want to have a lot of support and live music and everything. Um, so that's really important. But um, I think Sophie and I are both really passionate about the fact that there are people on the edges of the Parkinson's community who don't come to Parkinson's UK and don't go to the clinic, and those are the people that if we get more money, I would like us to start to try and really push and see how we get to those people. Um, yeah, just um, I work as a community health nurse, and a lot of the people I see who have Parkinson's, along with whatever they refer to for me for, are the people who are kind of on the periphery. Totally take and understand what you're saying about difficult questions. Mm. But for me, that's 
that's a question I would ask somebody as part of my first meeting with them. But you're a person asking that question uh -huh. to someone in a supportive, whereas giving them a piece of paper oh, where uh, there's no, list and list of list of questions that are all quite negative. Oh no, it's I, different. I don't think it is. Yeah, yeah. No. But it's that bit about um, support, and I've been to the ones in Kilmarnock and the, the taster sessions. Yes. Yeah. The feedback from there is from a, from two people that I. I've known for a while, I was able to speak about how I felt. It was so much easier. So, for me, that's if people are more relaxed and happy and enjoying, the flip side is sometimes you will get somebody saying how you feel. And yeah, and that's, and that's welcomed. Yeah. It, that, it, that's absolutely welcomed. It's, it's, it's not that that we, f we felt concerned about. It was more that, as I say, that separate piece of paper with that reiteration of difficult questions. Yeah, exactly. I wonder, based on your experience of teaching labour over the last five years and then this project, uh, would people come to a class more often than once a week? Because knowing from exercise, any exercise once a week is very little to improve whatever. Yeah. So, would people be willing to do that, or do they think that the one once a week is enough? No, I mean it's not just an exercise class because it's well, an exercise, but yeah. Movement. So it does it take quite a lot out of people, but I don't know. Um, I mean, a few a few interviewees did speak about how they wish they could do this more often, but it wasn't a concrete. It wasn't something I was concretely trying to find out. But what did take me by surprise, I'm sure I can remember the figure was the, the huge percentage of participants, Parkinson's dancers from both Edinburgh and Glasgow, that engaged in other physical activities as part of their week. Some of the timetables that people shared with me were just incredible. Uh, and also looking at the balance of activities, this was something else that I didn't set out to find, but there was a dominant trend in the type of activities that people are combining Parkinson's for dance, dance for Parkinson's with. So Tai Chi, Pilates, um, strength exercises, walking, Nordic walking, uh, swimming. People very rarely deviated from one of the ones I just read out. So I think it would be interesting to explore further if there is some link between the types. And that might be because those classes are set up for people living with Parkinson's specifically. You know, so, so that it's not just that they're dipping into a standard class that you or I might go to, it's that those, these are programmes that are promoted by Parkinson's UK that are for them. So that they're able to, to, to build up the retensile timetable that really helps. So they would do, many would go to other. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. We know each other from the other classes. <coughs> and and, and networks. Yeah. networks are built, yeah. No, I was just going to say that, I mean, I think our challenge, our primary challenge, is to reach more people rather than to get the same people to do more classes in one week. Yeah. I mean, I do think that's our challenge, and that's the challenge of funding, space, time. Funding being a big one <laughs> at Dark Space, and for many of the people here, I'm sure. But I mean, that, that's the thing, is that we need to reach more people, because um, the people living on the periphery zones of Edinburgh who don't access our classes for one reason or another, and those are the communities that we need to reach in Edinburgh, I think. That's my hobby horse. We 
we need to get out there and to make it possible for them to come to our classes. And I mean, I think ideally, some of our dancers would love to do more classes a week, but that our primary focus should be on reaching more people. But actually, it was a concern of ours with this conference as to how many classes they could cope with doing, because it's quite a lot of effort to come here to get through the building, to do the class, to get home again for, for quite a lot of the, the dancers. Um, and we, I think we needed a, some of them to do two classes and we were concerned. So it just depends. It all depends. Just to add on, one of the interesting findings as well from the foundation from this questionnaire was about the... I wanted to find out something coming from a sociology background about the socio-economic background of participants. And it was quite interesting seeing the difference between dance space in Edinburgh and um, Scottish Valley. Yeah. In Glasgow, in terms of one of the questions asked about um, educational background and the diversity in the spectrum uh, in Scottish Valley classes was just so much wider in terms of uh, where people left education, if you like. So, at what point did they went on to higher education or not and dance space? It, it was a huge percentage um, who were university, uh, who went to university, and also the different job titles and roles that people shared from. Particularly dance-based classes, yeah. um, consultants. But I mean, I, that, that's logical in a way. I mean, I can understand why that happened, which is that when we started our classes five years ago, we were, um, point of access was Parkinson's UK. So people had to self-refer to our classes, if you like. Yeah. And it's, so, so then you immediately going to get one demographic of people who think, oh, I'd like to dance, you know generally educated, middle-class, adventurous people. And whereas when Scottish Valley started, yeah. you, they were doing it in conjunction with and the Parkinson's nurse. And so immediately you get a diversity section yeah. of society, which is how it should be. Yeah. I mean, your model. But, but I understand how our model evolved. Yes. But your model is better. Yes, but we just need to look at how we can we yes. need to deal with that network well, so that you're getting referrals straight I'm, from. I'm lobbying. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think it's useful to have the evaluation with those, with those facts and figures because yeah. I think it's the difference between having a sense that you're not reaching the people that you need to reach and having something that sort of illustrates what you want to know and backs it up to have generated additional support and can I just ask a question linked to cost and everything? Has anybody done anything about the looking at the difference between live music and recorded music? We um, I don't know if, if people have. Um, we would be very reluctant not to have the live music because it's it's a hugely significant factor. It contributes to the atmosphere, to the dynamic, to the lifting mood. The musician is trained alongside the dance practitioner so that he. Also, I'm saying he, because our, our guy's the piano guy, Derek, and um, that, that um, and also, <laughs> yeah, I think we feel, I feel quite strongly that live music is, is important, and um, we're not at the point yet where we're so desperate for money that we would have to, we would have to cut the musician out to make the classes happen. Um, it's it's just such a it doesn't feel like a luxury it feels like an essential part of the experience. I, I absolutely understand that. Yeah. I, I just wondered if there was anything we said this morning. Sometimes yeah. you have to research to what, what you know to prove yeah. the point. No, you're um, right. And also, um, we had a discussion a little bit yesterday about 
rural practitioners working in Cornwall and areas where you know they're working on their own and they don't have the support network that we have here. Um, but we, you know, we fundraise specifically for that model. So because the impact is so significant, and we have a film on the website which you can have a look at, or I'll show at the end of the session. Um, if you want, it's a three-minute film, and it's it's um, basically kind of a, a, a little peek into the class. And some of the participants talk, all of them talk about the music. Even when they're talking about the class, they talk about the music within the class and how, and you know, they'll ask Derek for requests and now, and they, you know, he, it, it's, oh, he illustrates everything so perfectly that it just brings it to life in a way that I think it would be sad to not have that. So, but I do know what you mean. That I know. Evidence the benefits that you yes. see. Yes, definitely, and we are doing that. The evaluation is going to have a section about the role of live music, and I, I think I was expecting it to come through quite dominantly how important live music was, and all the interviewees, I think without exception, spoke about how important it was. Sure. What did take me by surprise, and which I think you can't completely train for, is I say this is Sophie this morning, is the personalities of the musicians. Um, I suppose I was just kind of assuming coming in as an evaluator that the musicians would all be lovely, creative, very nice people, but their distinct personalities and how active they are in the classes, both within the studio but also in the social time, the tea and coffee time, greeting people. Uh, this is Robert and um, Gordon at Dance Space and Delegates at Scottish Ballet, predominantly these are the musicians that, that I went. Uh, the personalities, this is what the participants were talking about, their, their friends and I think traditionally in dance research, quite often dance settings, the musician is somebody who's behind the piano, in the corner, playing an incredibly important role, but not necessarily known personally. Mm -hmm. And in these classes, it's so fundamental. And I was quite surprised by just how important that, that was. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I went to America, to New York, to watch the class, it was a, a percussionist who I saw who, who really inspired me, who was wandering through the room playing music and going on different levels while people dance and interacting with them, which was, which was really lovely. But it's Derek, um, who's worked with us at Scottish Valley for about 10 years, I think, is a very accomplished pianist. Um, and, but he, this class, this Parkinson's experience, has really brought him out from behind the piano in a way that other classes haven't. And it, that's been a lovely thing for him because when we brought him into the training, he had to move. He had to join in with everyone else during the training weekend. And he was really out of his comfort zone. But actually, stepping over that boundary has really given him tools that he didn't think he had. So. You can see the reaction from the Parkinson's dancers and when he and B came up to deliver training. Cause I think yeah. Competition. Yes, they did. Yeah. So, um, English so National Ballet came up to do a little session for our group. Which and was the, the, the head musician Nathan. Yes. Them, so Nathan took Derek's traditional role of um, being a pianist. So Derek was an active participant dancing in the class. <laughs> and his initial reaction was um, he's not trying to try to hide and the support from Parkinson's dancers in looking after him and um, sitting with him. It's just it was so lovely to see. And I think this is when it comes back to there's not really necessarily right or wrong way of doing research, but something like the qualitative method, I would not have been able to observe all of those interactions and the specific conversations that people were having with Derek. And all of us get scared sometimes, and for 
Derek to be brave enough to put himself in that scary position, I think help the Parkinson's dancers who also face fear sometimes to um, just to show and support. Um, it, I think on that note, it would be nice to talk a little bit about the impact that the programmes had on our professional company actually, because it, it's a similar thing to coming out of your comfort zone. Obviously, in a ballet company, the dancers are selected because of the, their physicality as much as their talent and skill. It's really about the body and the facility they have within their bodies. Um, and they spend their days looking at themselves in the mirror and trying to perfect the movements and being criticised and encouraged. And um, what's been really lovely about having the Parkinson's dancers in is that, I'm not sure if all of you have been through our whole building, but there is a social space, a kitchen area, a big sort of... Um, with sofas and things, and that's where the dancers, um, it's, until now it's been a very private space for the dancers, it's like their green room where they go and they can hang out. So we've taken the teas and coffees which happen between our two classes, so everyone from both the classes is, is in that space at the same time. And the dancers are able to, to see everyone and to hang out with everyone. And I think that's given Scottish Valley a real grounding and a real kind of integrity about us and a real humanity about the company. And the dancers, um, Fleur, who is my counterpart at English National Valley, she spoke yesterday about the challenges of a dancer coming to retirement at maybe 35 or 38 years old and feeling that their body's now not the way that it was. And being inspired by those Parkinson's dancers and the way that the humanity and the passion and the creativity and the commitment that they see in their movement and how that's been a real comfort and a real inspiration to them. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting mix and it's something that if we continue on with this work, I'd really like Bethany to, to start to talk to the dancers about how they feel the work's impacted on their practice and on their confidence. Some of the dancers have been lucky enough to participate in the classes and directly and to do training as well. But at the upper levels of the company, from our chief executive, our executive director, the chair of our board and our board members, there's a pride about this kind of work which is um, different to the pride about the work that we put on the stage. You know, the excellence with, um, that we, um, we're, we're proud of with the performances that we share with everyone um, is one thing. But when people talk at length about the pride with which they, um, they feel when they see the class, when they participate in the class, when they talk to uh, Parkinson's dancers about what they've taken from the classes and the benefits they have, and the fact that we're providing something for the community that's really special and it's not um, at the moment, it's pioneering work um, and it's groundbreaking and the, that is, is a different level of pride and it's because it's connected with a social consciousness that we can, you know, with tutus and punches and, you know, in a world where, you know, we're all considering what we can do to contribute to make people feel safe and feel welcome when they're coming to our country and, and all sorts of different ways that we're tackling world issues. Sometimes it feels a little bit superficial, the work that we do, and this gives us a different dynamic and a different confidence because we're making a difference in another way, which I think is really important. Yeah. 
is this something about um, you talk about the authenticity? Oh, well, I talk about the authenticity of this context of the work and the work that I do with it, and I, I tend to have essentially what you said about the beauty relationship as part of a broader offer in terms of what people's engagement therefore what because it, it is ultimately interest of the individual that inspires them to to want that engagement. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder whether you are whether as part of the, the broader company that, that sort of space between the participatory framework and actually that can enable greater work to be created because you, you, you cross over the social response of a conversation and individual -led experience and that in itself is a transition to how organisations develop creates the bedrock of action, greater and better yeah, There's absolutely no doubt in my mind whatsoever that it is having an impact on the artistic choices that are being made for the company. Um, we commissioned um, um, Mark Brew, um, who, who was a professional ballet dancer and through an accident is now in a, has been in a wheelchair for quite a long time. As a choreographer, came and made a work, a professional work in the company, um, which included um, people with disabilities. I mean, it's, I don't know how many ballet companies across the world would create a work with dancers, professional dancers who have disabilities as well as um, able-bodied ballet trained dancers. But also, um, he suddenly started to talk um, to me about an idea he has for a balancing work, a famous balancing work, Apollo, um, whereby he would be looking at someone who doesn't have a body that we would expect in a ballet company. And so I have absolutely no doubt that, that, um, that there's, there's significant shifts happening at, at a really high level, which because of this work, and, and just, just quickly before we can go back, um, we're, it's given us the confidence in our team and education to start to look at dementia as a, as a project. And we were really lucky to get three years <coughs> to start to look at um, dance for dementia programmes, creativity around that. And because of our confidence, because of the success that we've had through the Parkinson's project, it's, it's given us now a dance health um, team within our team, if you like, of specialists. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's been really significant, the change and the shift, and really exciting for, it, for everyone. And people are all proud about it, and people are all moved by it. The marketing team, um, the, the fundraising team, how excited, you know, and come to me and say, oh, we found another trust that we think we can apply for because they see the, the impact that's happening. Um, that's just one thing that I wanted to ask. Um, I previously um, worked for a short time at Rumba and I'm now with Academy. And one thing that dance companies, as I'm sure many, are struggling with is constant funding to keep these going and having to do them in set sessions. Um, a lot of the projects that we're working on at Academy are kind of done between 8, 10 or 12 weeks. And then we have to go away and if we're lucky enough to get a, a, if we're lucky enough to be able to fund it again or someone then gives us another funding to do it again. I, how does it work in terms of the Scottish Ballet and Dance Space? Are they continuing for is it every single week for the whole year or every two weeks or is it done in set sections? Because it was always quite sad seeing when I was working at Ron Bear, the, the Parkinson's classes would be great, they would run for eight weeks and then you say goodbye for however many weeks and it was always quite sad. And we did a car, we do a class in um, Uxbridge and they were lucky enough to be able to do another 12 weeks, which is great. I mean, I'm new to it, so I wasn't there before, but I've just come in and they, I've just met them and they, um, they have the same teacher. And all I kept hearing when they were talking to her was, um, 
missed you so much, we've missed you so much, we can't believe we're here again, it's amazing. And this is just me, I've, I've just started and all of a sudden like, the first things I'm hearing is when we're coming back is how amazing it is that we're back and it's such a shame that we went. And I think it's quite emotional on both parts of, for a company and the participants that have that time away. When they do, like, it's, like you said, you get a core group that really interact and really love it and want to be there. But money is such an issue that, and you don't want to ask people to pay out their pockets, especially things like live musicians, they do cost extortionate amounts of money, which you understand why, because they are professionals, but at the same time, you want to be able to give them that experience, but the same main point is to keep the classes running, that interaction. How does it work? Do you guys find that you can, you're able to do it continuously, or do you find that you have to have a break in order to secure some funding and then open it out again to another however many weeks? There's quite, you said quite a lot of things, <laughs> so I'll try and pick them a little bit at a time to help you, but essentially the reason the research is so important is not just for our learning, but it's also so that we can go to funders and demonstrate. So of course with any, any research that we have we're welcome to use for, to, to, to demonstrate that the, the classes are really beneficial, so you've got some hardcore evidence. When I, when I went out to America and met with David, he said to me, you know, we want, it's really great that the classes need to run every week. They need to run every week because people need them as, as I mean, we say they're not therapy, but, but they help. They help people, they have a therapeutic impact. And so we only have a couple of weeks off in the summer, two weeks, and we have a couple of weeks off at Christmas. Um, we were lucky enough to get the 18-month funding, um, but we also um, have been writing, we're lucky to have a fundraising team within Scottish Valley. And so they have been, once they have their initial copy written about the benefits and what the impact is, they send it out to as many trusts as they can, relationships that we've been building. And so we've, we've raised, we've continued to raise small amounts of money to, to help us keep going. And we're now waiting for another big lot of money, which we may or may not get. Um, I think, and not to, to, it's, a, it's a huge conversation, and we don't have so much time to talk about it today, but we can talk later. But I, my feeling generally is that dance and music and drama and visual arts have a significant, it's time to step up, you know, community practice has been going on for years and years and years and years, but now we're working in partnership with the NHS, and um, the NHS, the government, there needs to become an, a greater awareness and a greater understanding and a greater leverage to make those partnerships blossom because we are improving the lives of people who have degenerative illnesses, we absolutely are, and so um, that in the longer term will save, save the government money, so we need to invest now in in teaching and developing the practice and models and so that we can continue on with this work and it's valued and so that we're not fighting as you are and as we will be if, if we don't get the next lot of money to continue on to provide that resource for people who really, really need it and they need their lives enriched when, when things are challenging. So, um, so yeah. How much does eight weeks of that course of the like I know I'm asking the student personally, even if you get like eight weeks, how much, what cost is involved in eight weeks like that? Cost? Yes. I mean it depends, the, the classes cost about £400 a week for us, that's for two classes in, in one day, and um, with the studio free etc. Um, and us doing all the administration ourselves, so it probably would cost about £500 if you added all those costs in as well, but it's about £400 per week. And I, I would just say 
I wouldn't say that the musicians are extortionate. I think they're, they are the same. We pay our musicians the same as our dance teachers. Um, and so, and um, I think we, we pitch our, our rates of pay around, you know, at the upper end of, of what's, what's on, um, generally paid at Kind of wandered off. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably um, not a not a very intelligent question. In some some ways, I'm I'm from Ireland, so my experience around dance and Parkinson's, I'm I'm thinking back to Ireland, and I'm just wondering, um, the endorsement you have from Parkinson's UK, was that always there in relation to dance, or did that take a while to come about? Because as far as I can gather, I'm not working directly in dance in Ireland, I'm working on the Bialtina Festival for older people, but in Ireland my dance colleagues have said in relation to Parkinson's that they have no buy-in from the equivalent to Parkinson's in Ireland. I mean, as far as I'm aware, we didn't do that. Mm-hmm. What, we, what we did was we approached them to say that, that this practice has been happening in America for 10 years or whatever, that it has proven benefits. This is the research that's already taken place. Um, we had conversations, um, we had people invited guests along, so we were doing a taster, we invited people along to see for themselves, because those people are your spokespeople. They, like the doctors in the NHS teams, Parkinson's UK are the people who are going to be saying on the front line, okay, you have a diagnosis, these are a range of things that are going to be great for you, that you're going to really enjoy, you can meet new people. Um, so, so that's what I would recommend. Um, and also talking to us putting you in contact with people that we know in Parkinson's UK who have attended mm-hmm. um, and also people, our dancers with Parkinson's who are proactive within their own dance or Parkinson's communities, dance, uh, Parkinson's UK community sorry um, because there's, there are people who are on advisory panels etc etc who can influence as well. So is it relatively new here that Parkinson's UK endorses dance as, as a means by which to improve. Yeah, did you Sorry, I was just going to add in because I've been in the dance class as well for about eight years um, and I was one of the very first people in the UK to start such a class and it's been a conversation over about eight years with Parkinson's UK. Yeah, it's certainly not been a very, an easy okay. journey really? and it's not been like, oh great, take care, one of your shoes. Lots of people put lots and lots of work in trying to work with Parkinson's UK looking at lots of different languages that we might be able to use, using evidence-based, using quantitative evidence, qualitative evidence, research, shared practice. Okay. So it's, it's so just really, it's been a real journey. And it's certainly, right at the beginning, I have to very much go in as a physio, with my physio okay. hat on, and say, look okay. at all these physical benefits that we can prove to try and win them over. Okay. Get to that point and oh, and by the way, <laughs> this is all the creativity that we're also doing. Um, we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go with Parkinson's UK. Okay. So it's, it's not, it, I'm hesitant to say it's not a glorious journey, but it, it's been a, it has been a journey. We'll see you some micro-connections. Um, Catherine and Zilko will need to see more, but I think the connection between dance space and the Edinburgh branch of Parkinson's UK um, had a slightly different narrative, so it's been able to use what already exists in terms of local connection and, and run with it further. So what's really nice is one of the Parkinson's dancers from Dance Space is involved with the Edinburgh branch of Parkinson's UK and has asked me to come to the next AGM to present the evaluation. Um, so it's, it's just so fantastic to 
I feel like I'm, I'm having a chance to engage in a more two-way relationship and actually go to go to the AGM. I have the chance to present the work of dance based in the Scottish Ballet and hopefully um, a dance practitioner will be coming with me so that we can we can talk talk together. Mm -hmm. The NHS is another thing and they were they were easier, I think, maybe. Yeah. I mean I I have to say, the Parkinson's UK branches in Scotland were very quick to put flyers out for us, it was no problem. The branches so, definitely, yeah. it's higher up, is okay. the chance, but branches without a doubt are always really good to promote things for yeah. you and to say this is an opportunity for you that, that will have great benefits. Okay. So, yeah. okay. Thank you. I was wondering, the reason I asked about the money is that I, because I work in a nursing, I believe that things should be ingrained a young age, you know, they just this they water after dying, the only thing that we learn from the things that we do in the nursery. I was wondering if you take it into the schools, like I know there's the Duke of Edinburgh Award, and you know, things like this could encourage young people to get involved in projects, and if it's only something like, even if they raise 400 pounds, it's not a sum that you can't you know, um, it's not such a big sum, if you know, I mean, if it's, so if every school just does a little bit, one or two people get involved in that, so, you know, it, they tell their friends, the friends tell their friends, and you always find a caring yeah. person. I think there's a momentum with the Dance of Parkinson's, which we don't have in any other programme that we run, whereby there's an energy, people want to raise money, and a couple of our Parkinson's dancers have, have run and walked to raise money themselves for the programme. But um, there's certainly, I would say yes, it's certainly something that people pick up on and that they want to, they want to give money to. So it's definitely something we could roll out in that way. Um, yes, just the funding thing. We've former the Pavilion Dance Southwest have also worked quite hard with perhaps local big businesses and to match fund and that's a really good way of trying to get a bigger pot for longevity because mm -hmm. it's yes. so I think there's mm -hmm. also an ethical issue about exactly what you're saying, setting up a few classes saying here have a taster and then more than more money left and that's fair enough because you know everything runs on money but um, I think if you can get a bigger pot so that you can actually have a really good experience and develop it and allow people to go on that journey that's almost worth maybe holding out for to try and keep going than kind of just dripping it. Maybe, I don't know, it's a, it's a conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of the research? Because we kind of touched on it a little bit in the question, and I think it would be a good opportunity to do so. Um, I'd like to move back a few stages if that's okay. So, I first started working with Scottish Ballet in 2015, um, evaluating the dance education group, which Catherine mentioned earlier. And that took place over a year, and the research method used was in structured interviews, and talking to the dancers one-on-one, or in one of twos. And then I was brought on board to evaluate the close, which was a different type of research again. And this was very participant um, observations of dancing with the young people, dancing in the words, climbing trees, um, and I'm always involved in this as well. So, uh, it's sort of in the winter, going to the schools, joining in the tasters, and then with Dance with Parkinson's, it's been a different approach. Again, it was a very intensive, very ethnographic six to seven week model that was adopted with the interviews and the observations. And the, um, and the questionnaire that I amended from Cynthia McRae, the 
Leventhal. So I think one of the benefits for me coming in as an academic, especially as an ECR, an early career researcher, so very much learning all the time, is just how much I have the chance to develop as an academic. And I think it's quite rare to find those opportunities where you're being long-term board and being allowed and supported to take risks with your research and to ask questions that in another industry or another setting you might be a bit frightened to ask because you're meant to know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> it's quite scary. I think it's just because I'm quite into it. It's only got the PhD this year. But if you've got the type of doctor, you feel like you really should know everything about what you're doing. You're really brought on um, as, as an expert. And there's something about being based in university and working in the field and working in partnership with a ballet company and having the chance to develop that long-term relationship, I think it's been really quite extraordinary. I just I, I feel so lucky that we've been able to do that and to learn from each other. And it worried me slightly at one point. I thought, when do we get to the stage where Bethany's still external because she's spending so much time <laughs> researching? She starts to feel like she's part of the team, if you like, and you're wanting. Um, an external eye, but I think what's been really exciting for us as, as, a, as a performing company is that it's given us a real confidence having that relationship and having the evidence about the impact that we're having um, has given us a real confidence, but also um, the opportunity to engage with different communities because Bethany present her work at different conferences that we would never consider attending um, and so we're engaging and understanding and we're, um, we're promoting the benefits of the work um, to new audiences and new fun potential funders and people again who will fight the cause and spread the word. And also this way of working the value that can come for both um, industry and, and academia if investment can be placed in this type of long-term relationship. And talking about the inside-outside perspective, I am getting more and more embedded within the Scottish Valley. That's, that's completely the case. This can always be cons with losing the inside-outside perspective. But at the same time, I feel like I now have a level of honesty and trust with, with Scottish Valley, which in some ways can make it a lot easier to go and say, I'm concerned about this piece of data, or uh, I want to chat through this method I've adopted, or um, rather than it having to be so sort of clinical in the sense of, this is my brief, this is my plan, I'm not going to deviate, I'm not too scared to deviate because it's been signed off and this is the agreement. So it's having that fluidity and flexibility. Yeah, I'm able to go and respond. Should I talk a wee bit about the dissemination? Yeah. So I actually finished this off because I thought I was going to This is my wee list of <laughs> conferences, talks, um, based presentations and publications which you just have <coughs> to work with Scottish Ballet. So uh, for academics there's a huge amount of pressure on people to publish. Um, we know the saying publish or perish, which is when you're a PhD student and, and it's um, it's given frightening because just how long it can take to get a publication out is quite unbelievable. So to give you some perspective, my last publication was a book chapter. So the chapter was submitted as part of a book proposal in autumn 2014 and it was published in March. So it took that long to go through the process. Uh, and that was partly because of the peer review process and there'd be lots of other, other chapters going through it as well. So you're constantly looking out for ways that you can sort of cement your academic identity as well as share the exciting research that's being produced. 
So Catherine was saying that I'm able to kind of reach places and go to places that Scottish family wouldn't normally um, go to, and, and vice versa. I feel like my research has been shared with audiences that I wouldn't go to. So some examples are um, there's a big national conference, the Dance Fields Conference in April, which uh, Sarah Houston was also at. She was on the panel earlier. And being able to talk about the workings of a ballet company in relation to education. How do you reconcile competing education and artistic demands when everybody has got priorities and agendas and there's so many multifaceted bits that you're trying to match up? It was so exciting to talk about that in the context of management theory, which I won't go into the specifics of, but if you want to know, come and find me later. And out of that conference, um, I was asked to write an extended abstract as part of a book proposal to Bloomsbury for a chapter on the work of Dance Education Group. And, and we're going to find out at the end of this month if it's been accepted, but it's already been accepted at the first stage, which is really exciting. So each time I'm finding opportunities, I'm drafting the abstract, the presentation, the, the conference slides, um, and I'm going to Catherine, send a kind of material, is this okay, should we talk about it further? And it's, it's just so exciting that we're able to move quite quickly, because definitely from a university perspective, things can move very, very slowly. So, and what's been nice for our team is um, we've, de we've decided to set up a, what we're calling a journal club whereby we're trying to meet um, every couple of months and everyone in the team bringing along a medical or um, government-based article so that we can share our learning so that we're looking at the new developments in science around dementia and Parkinson's as well and, sh and sharing that and thinking about how we can apply that to our practice. Um, so we're working in a slightly different way as well that we would usually in an arts background. We're trying to integrate more with the research that's happening. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, which is really exciting for me, is Miriam Early, it's part of Catherine's team. Um, you probably will see him back to her. I was a day. She's been delivering around the clock. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Catherine knew that Miriam had a particular interest in research and evaluation. And the two of us actually got to spend some time together, um, just just one on one. I kind of devised and talked through what would be like a research methods course for Elastis, for example, so I got to sit down with the room for the education team and talk about different types of interviews, different types of observation. Um, hopefully we're going to move on to analysis later. And it definitely helps me coming into the settings, knowing that somebody also has the understanding of how messy it can be and all the bits that need to be in place and the importance of going through a really robust ethics process, for example, and having the time and the space to do my end properly um, and to be supported by the company in order for it to benefit everybody. So it felt a real privilege working with Miriam and that's something that I hope we'll be able to do. Build on that. Yeah, yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, definitely with the dementia programs there. Could I just ask probably the crap question, but how are you funded? Did that for you? Well, it's all changed. <laughs> <laughs> so um, initially, Scottish Ballet with the that's a strategy group and the place commissioned me to come in as an evaluator. So I worked as a freelancer. But it was And we basically built we build in money with every funding application we yeah. submit, we build in money for a researcher now. So that's right. how we first were able to Yeah. Um, and it's the same for the dance of Parkinson's, but um, the statistics for getting a kind of academic or post PhD are just utterly frightening. 
And it was partly because of my work with Scottish Ballet that I was actually made full-time permanent at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland just last month. So that's been an incredibly tangible benefit in terms of getting, getting permanent employment. But it also means that as we hopefully continue our working relationship, I now have more flexibility because I've got more stability in my professional life, which I haven't had before. So with the Dance of Dementia project, I'm to dance at Scottish Ballet setting up. Um, Catherine's invited me to all of the training events that the practitioners and musicians are taking part in. And as a freelancer juggling different projects, it would be really hard to take you up on that invite as much as I want to. But because I'm now supported completely by my institution, I can, I can do that, which is really, really exciting. So it was a, it was a good story. Very mm -hmm. It's a rare story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lucky. Congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you. I do feel I do very lucky. Um, but I think at some point, I'm sure I won't be. I'm not always going to be the right researcher or evaluator for Scottish Ballet. It's just that the sorts of things we've been working on have matched my skills and to my interest. Yeah. So, absolutely. Can I have one tiny question on the end? Does the ethics for the dance, the Parkinson's work, go through the university you're affiliated with? Yes. How does that relationship work? Do you, as Scottish Ballet, have a direct, other than through yourself? Um, relationship with the university in terms of the research part. Uh, what happened was is I was employed um, as, as like a freelancer for the Dance of Parkinson's evaluation and it was through the institution. So Scottish Ballet, if you like, involved the RCS and then the RCS involved me, that's the chain because I'm already part of the department. Shall I carry on about the ethics? And just, just to say that we approached um, Bethany's supervisor for her PhD say we really want to have a researcher working with us. We partner with the conservatoire on all sorts of different things and it made sense to work with them and they recommended Bethany and so so we subcontracted her really via the so, so Stephen who was, who was your supervisor at that time still supervised the work so that's why it went through. Yes, and it's also to have the, the backing of the institution in terms of accessing resources, journal papers, having that infrastructure. And it also meant that there was a robust ethics process to go through because I was going through the institutions. And the ethics, I'm also a member of the ethics committee. Uh, and the ethics process at the Conservatoire is unbelievably robust. Um, it's actually, I think it's above and beyond other ethical processes that I've experienced at other institutions. So I knew I'd have to start off really, really quickly with the ethics process because it could take so long to complete the form and put all the bits and pieces together, go through the language, put together all the appendices. So that conversation was one of the first ones that we had when I spoke to Catherine. Um, um, and I wasn't shocked because I had been through the NHS ethics committee to try and do the first yeah. one. So <laughs> having, having yeah. no idea about ethics committees and boards, I then felt like a new... Does that answer your question? Yeah. We've probably got another five or six minutes before we need to <coughs> finish it. Does anyone can? Uh, uh, are there any changes to, uh, to increase the uh, general audience to see the performance? Yeah, uh, 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 after you're involved in such a programs yes. in relation with the social so yeah. society, yeah. are there any increasing to come and see the company. Yes, the general audience. Yeah, well, that's interesting you asked that question because we didn't touch at all on the fact that the, 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 the Parkinson's dancers come to see the work. Mm. 
So they're very involved with Scottish Ballet and they have a real link to the company. So they learn repertoire the same way. So if we're creating Swan Lake upstairs, the dancers in the Parkinson's classes are working on Swan Lake repertoire. Um, and there's the odd deviation, but mostly it's we're, we're on the same pathways. Um, and as part of that programme, we invite the Parkinson's classes to come up to the studio to watch rehearsals, and then also to come to see the performances or to see the actual. It, um, the cost is so significant that we found with Swan Lake. We bought everyone tickets to see Swan Lake and it cost us thousands of pounds. So now we take everyone to the, dress, the final dress rehearsal. So they're seeing the performance, but also it means that they can come into the theatre with no one else there. It's a smaller audience. It's, take your time to get into your seat. There's no problem. Um, so I think at the moment, in terms of our ticket buying, um, audience. There's probably not much increase because we try to get them in the back door in a way that's more comfortable for them and is free for us. And it also lets the technical team and um, the, the touring aspect of the company see, see the dance and Parkinson's classes and meet them as well and understand the work that we do which is really important too. Um, but um, also Dance Space gave tickets for their festival um, programme, so, so everyone was included. So I'm not sure. It's an interesting question because I wonder about people who fund this kind of work, who wouldn't fund Tutus and Pointches, for example, um, but who would like to, to, to fund, because it's quite serious, it's quite a dis distinct um, group of people, there's a difference. I think there definitely is a sense of, um Audiences being grown, though, in the sense that mm. perceptions of ballet and dance um, have been developed and changed through the classes. So, during the interview data, people um, seemed to speak very openly about what their relationship was with dance and their perceptions of ballet in particular before they joined Dance with Parkinson's classes, and now what they think of dance and ballet. And sometimes it's not a case of ballet is for me, they still might not particularly like ballet, but there's the appreciation and respect and an understanding that there wasn't before. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think it's different, that's the difference between the Edinburgh and the Glasgow classes. Because the Glasgow classes now, you know, we have quite a working class um, makeup of that group as we spoke about, and they're very now confident about their critical analysis of family. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they are very, they have an ownership about the company and the work. That I think the dance based group don't quite have, although well, they do have some, some of it, because we invite them along to the rehearsal things, but because they're in this building and they see the dancers and they um they values their they, they feel part of that world quite mm -hmm. rightly, which is ex really exciting. So I think perhaps that's another step. What you're talking about is coming. Yeah. It's 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 a, it's a big question because actually it's not just about the Parkinson's dancers, their families, because obviously they're going home and talking to their children and their grandchildren about these positive experiences, and so they're then wanting to buy into the company. But it's about funders, it's about um, board members, and, and and people who love the valley for what it is are now finding a different. There's a different avenue as well. So. I feel like there's lots of pockets of research which the evaluation has sort of spun up, unlocked. Yeah, which and I think that that's a growth of audiences and changing perceptions is something that I'd love to look at further. And I did interview practitioners for the evaluations and spoke to people about what they had gained from being involved, but we don't feel like we followed that through to where it's yeah. good. But also, Fleur, um, 
who Flora Darkshire Fox, who is the director of engagement at English National Ballet, and I had this had a little discussion competition yesterday in one of our sessions, and we spoke about why why it's important for a ballet company to do this kind of dance health work, and that's that's one of the main reasons is to reach audiences and people to excite them and engage them in these these works of art that we're creating in different ways and reach audiences that we wouldn't normally. And we are, we're Scotland's national dance company, so we're funded to be accessible to everyone. <coughs> and this is a really tangible way that we can do that. Um, yeah. Any more questions? Yeah. I'm just thinking, um, it's the NHS response to a brief context. And, and it's more around change that happens currently and is always consistent. In my conversations with relatives or doctors, it's all about that personal response to what the NHS has to go through, and, it's in it, and then to reflect on their changes in light of what dance and artistic work can bring to the table to support that change. Yeah. So, I, I, to give a bit more context, so, so um, you know, the, the health board was set up. You know, you get to think of the, the historical context and the reasons behind the health board get back to the NHS. You know, it is about civic responsibility. At, at, the, at the point of care, wasn't it? There was that kind of context, and, and this is the mantra there. And I just wonder, in terms of then, through change and research and evaluation, and dance, and engagement, and participation, whether that's that kind of the conversation of civic responsibility has been part of that. So, that, so therefore, what you will, will ultimately have at, at the level, you will have you have synergy between the the mantra of both the NHS and the artistic intervention, the authenticity around that, and how those things are actually equivalent. They, they do interact at a, at a level, and it's how, you, how that narrative is told, in fact, that will, that will just enable it to happen, rather than, rather than what you've described, some of the challenges that exist in process, rather than actually the delivery. I think that's really exciting, what you're talking about, it's really interesting, and I've not been engaged in such a high-level discussion, but I don't think it's far away. Um, but I think what you've spoken about um, was really helpful for me to be able to articulate that observation that you've had. Um, I mean, one of the challenges that we, when we first met Dr. Grosset, who's very academically minded and not, pra not a practical man and not a physical person, he doesn't do sport or, or dance. And um, for me, it was, it was a difficult, the first sort of half hour of the conversation was very difficult. However, there was a moment where the penny dropped when I said, dance can free up a stammer, it can free up a freezing or a locking in a way that we don't really understand how, how it happens. And he then, he got that because he'd had, a, he'd had a guy in who said, when I drive, I don't have any tremor. I don't freeze, I just drive, it's great. And I said, yeah, there you go, that's it. There, that's what we're talking about. It's that fluidity of movement. It's, a, it's accessing a different part of the brain. It's a subconscious aspect and then and then he bought into it. But it's it's again it's it's getting people <coughs> to see the work. Because when there's an atmosphere in a dance for Parkinson's class which is so moving and um, because everyone's in the moment and everyone is is trying to get the best out of that experience and support each other and connect with everyone in the room and it's it's like magic. And when when people see that then they really understand. But it's getting them to come. <laughs> when they've got no time and they're overworked and they're understaffed. Yeah. yeah. Is that us? Yeah? I think okay.
thank you to Bethany. Thank you. And thank you all for, for joining us.